Hello, this is Yara Stark, and welcome to an Entrepreneur's Journey podcast interview. And today I have probably one of the most fun guests you could have on an interview, Mr. Timothy Ferris. Tim, thank you for joining me. Oh, well, thank you for the uh, very kind introduction. I'm excited <laughs> to be here. I say fun because everything about your life seems to be fun, Tim. So um, <laughs> I don't know how you squeeze it all in, which is really what we're here to talk about. I, I obviously... Um, people will know you already. I'm sure there's not a single person listening to this who hasn't heard of at least the four-hour work week. Uh, that's something I've talked about many times before on my blog, Four-Hour Body, your sequel to that. And now the latest book is The Four-Hour Chef. So that's what we're here to talk about, among other things. And I've done a quick little background check because I don't know much about The Four-Hour Chef besides the obvious title. It's got to have something to do with cooking. But I can see there's two aspects of this. You've got the cooking and you've got the, uh, I guess, productivity, lifestyle design, how you learn to do things well quickly. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a, it's a cookbook for any skill disguised as a cookbook for food. That's the, the short version. Uh, because my, my readers have been asking me for a book on, on rapid learning for four or five years now. And I thought the most entertaining way to do that would be to take a skill that involves all the senses, which is unusual, cooking, take a kill, uh, to take a skill that had kicked my ass several times, which a lot of people aren't aware of. There are skills that defeat me. Uh, cooking is it. And then to, from start to finish, travel around the world, meeting the world's best chefs and fastest learners, and take all their tips and tricks and put it in one place. Now, Tim, I'm amazed by... The amount of things you actually get done in your your life thus far. Uh, I was just listening to an interview with you, and I don't know if I should say this publicly, but you did mention it publicly on the interview that you used to be a break dancer before you were into tango, which uh -huh. is obviously what people probably know about the tango part because you talked about that in, in your books. But break dancing. Not to mention Silicon Valley investor, obviously traveling around the world to uh, interview and, and study under chefs to then write a book, which is you know a full time undertaking in itself is writing a book. So you know, how do you make all this happen? Do you not sleep? <laughs> you know, this is I, no. I actually sleep a lot. I love sleeping. Um, I, I really, I really love sleeping a lot. So I, I try to get eight to ten hours a night. It doesn't always happen, uh, but. I think the the way I create the perception of getting a lot done, I mean, if you looked at me on a day-to-day -day basis, you'd be like, wow, this guy wastes a lot of time. Um, <laughs> I don't want to hear that. It's <laughs> just procrastinating a lot. No, but here's the secret. The secret is that I focus on being as effective as possible as opposed to being as efficient as possible. Or at least I focus on choosing the right things to do first. And then I can be me I can be kind of not mediocre in my execution, but if I procrastinate a little bit like everybody else, as long as I choose the right things, then uh, I can get some some pretty tremendous domino effects. And so what I mean by that is if I'm looking at, let's say, a, a hypothetical to-do list, I'll really take time to try to identify the one thing that if accomplished would affect everything else. Or the one thing that, if accomplished, would render the other things I'm avoiding null and void and eliminate them. Uh, to find those, those force multipliers, and there aren't many. So it's like one thing every, every three months or whatever it might be, that if done, really 
just magnifies everything else, like an Archimedes lever. Uh, I think I'm, I'm good at, at habitually just taking the time to do that. And it allows me to get away with murder. <laughs> can, you, like, can you explain with an example? What's the most recent one thing that you, you did? Was it today or this week? Or Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you an example. I mean, the, uh, in the case of, let's say, launching a book. So we have The 4-Hour Chef. I'm prouder of this book than of, of, of uh, any book I've written. And you know, I am proud of the other books. But this one I feel is like sort of the bedrock that allowed me to do all the other stuff. So I'm also being boycotted by Barnes & Noble, though. 600-plus stores in the U.S. It's the biggest retailer. And because I'm the first major book coming out of Amazon Publishing, I'm being boycotted. So that means I need to move, let's say, in my week, which is the week of Thanksgiving, super busy, uh, 100,000 books probably to hit number one book scan, which then translates to number one Wall Street Journal. New York Times is fickle, so I might not even hit the New York Times regardless of how many copies I sell because of the, the retail boycott. But so I need to look at the critical few things that will allow me to multiply uh, the number of sales, right? So I'll be doing uh, – so one of those, which I'll be doing <clears throat> is uh, is a competition where I can turn my most devout readers and most capable readers into resellers of the book where they can sell, let's say, three-book packages, 30-book packages, 100-book packages, et cetera, and then be placed on a leaderboard – where I can select the most effective and have them, you know, fly them from anywhere in the world to San Francisco for two full days with me or something. Who knows? I haven't figured out all the details, but I know that if I execute that campaign effectively, it should have the potential to move, you know, between 10 and 30,000 books. And that's a very, that's a, that's a moving the needle type of endeavor, right? So if I have then another, another thousand things that I could do to promote the book, and let's face it, like there, there are a thousand things you could do to promote a book. And there are at least you know a hundred of them that are pretty attractive, uh, but I will sort of rank them in order next to that one critical uh, campaign, that one critical initiative, which is this this group selling. Um, so that would be that would be a good example. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about the book. So I, I don't want to forget about this part too, because obviously your first book, the Four Hour Work Week, was was sort of lifestyle design. Uh, it kind of introduced you to the the world at large in a lot of ways. That's that's where I first heard about you. And from that point, we kind of learned that you were great at, well, I guess, multitasking. Or maybe that's not the right way to describe it. But you picked up a lot of skills quickly. You had a, a business that was very uh, low labor intensive to make it work, or you, you know, set up different income streams that were like that, and you taught people how to do this. So it was sort of an outsourcing lifestyle design, mini vacations, travel, ultimately a four-hour work week book. Really big hit, hit the nail on the head, and I think for a lot of people, uh, open their eyes to what is possible. Certainly not having a, a job is a real a possibility, thanks to you know, the way we, we live our lives at the moment with the internet. Then the four-hour body was, I guess, hacking your body, as, as your title uh, described. And I mean, I read that book, and I'm still amazed, again, how you managed to do so many different little experiments on yourself. Like, um, it's, it's a little bit twisted, to be honest, some of the stuff you did, but, um, you know, everything and everything from losing weight to gaining weight to, you know, you traveling down to um, third world countries to get medical procedures because it was cheaper there, things like that. So it was a nice extension, I guess, of the first ideas introduced in the four hour work week. The four hour chef, what's the big picture goal here? What are we trying to teach people? Yeah, the big picture goal is to, to teach, teach people how to. Uh, really double tri or triple at least their learning speed, 
uh, with any skill. So rather than, let's say, tackling a language and it taking a lifetime to master, which is a common myth, or believing that adults learn languages slower than children, which is completely untrue, uh, which you can prove with research, you, know, you can become functionally fluent in a language in 8 to 12 weeks. And so I'd like to teach people how to do that uh, and how to do the same with just about any skill. Uh, and and yeah, I've, I've systematically taken this sort of the grand recipe of all this meta learning process and applied it to like t- tango, breakdancing, basketball, swimming. I mean, I couldn't even swim until a few years ago and now I do it to relax. It's, uh, and the, the way that I sort of tried to collect these methods and tips and tricks was by looking at people like da Vinci, uh, like, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Jobs, Nikolai Tesla, who are really polymaths. Like how do they do that? And I made a study of it. So it's to teach people how to learn like the world's fastest learners, basically. And Benjamin Franklin in particular is really interesting because his trinity was healthy, wealthy, and wise. And uh, there are only kind of three main obsessions that I have that I think I've really done a deep dive on. And uh, so healthy for our body, wealthy for our work week, and then wise is, to, is the four-hour chef for me. It's, it's the book on, on maximizing learning potential and human potential. Um, so that's, that's pretty much it. And I'm using the vehicle of cooking a lot like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance uses motorcycles to explain, you know, Zen and whatnot. Hmm. That reminds me of that tennis book. Um, I think it's Tim Galloway, the, uh, it's a similar concept, but Mm -hmm. titles lost me. Um, the meta learning that you're Mm -hmm. talking about here, can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I, I mean, over the last 15 years, starting in college where I did a lot of experimentation with smart drugs of different types like vasopressin or desmopressin, synthetic version, and was in uh, neuroscience labs and whatnot, <clears throat> from the very beginning, I mean, I've been obsessed with how to accelerate learning. And meta-learning is just a, a, a step-by-step process that you can impose on any skill to make it easier to learn. And the uh, the the general acronym is is DISS to remember. So D-I-S-S-S, there are three S's. And it's deconstruction, which is figuring out the the Lego blocks of a given skill, breaking it down into different pieces. Uh, and that could apply to, to anything. I mean, poker, basketball, doesn't matter. Uh, second step is selection. So doing an 80-20 analysis to pick the 20% of those Lego blocks that produce 80% of the results you want. Uh, the, then sequencing, so putting them in the right order, which is really important. So it's like you know, a lot of people who play golf think they have bad form, or in fact they're just moving <laughs> pieces, the, the, the portions of their body in the incorrect order, which is what Stan uh, Stan Utley, a great uh, golf coach, talks about a lot. And then the last S is stakes. So how do you failure proof uh, behavioral change, or how do you failure proof practice so that you you create the carrot and the stick so that there's a consequence. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of building in an insurance policy that you actually do what you're supposed to do, whether it's, you know, vocabulary cards or going out and lifting weights or whatever. Um, then there are other parts sort of, uh, in the advanced level of the meta learning where you're looking really closely at frequency cramming, how to cram like six months of culinary school into 48 hours, which is something I actually did with the help of a couple of chefs. And it was super, super intense, but teaches a lot of interesting principles when you try something like that. Or in coding, where you take really slippery material like Japanese characters or memorizing a deck of cards in 60 seconds or less, which uh, one world champion in memory taught me how to do. Uh, How to take material that's really hard to grasp and turn it into something that's easier to grasp. Um, 
And that's, uh, that's the general process. And what it, t- it took me a long time to figure this out because if you look at, let's say, me learning languages, uh, the first I failed in Spanish for multiple years and d- d- decided that I was bad at languages until uh, I stumbled up upon a, cr- a few things in Japan when I was there uh, as an exchange student, and I learned Japan in a, in Japanese in a year using comic books and judo textbooks. So I learned Japanese to read, write, speak in a year. Then I refined it, learned Mandarin in six months, refined it, refined it, tweaked it, refined it, German in three months, and then uh, Spanish in, in, eight, in about eight weeks. Um, and so I've just been refining this process over the last you know, decade or so and you know, finally feel confident enough in it that uh, it can go in a book. So that's why it's taken so freaking long. <laughs> Well, it's an exciting proposition, Tim. I'm looking forward to, to reading. I'd love to grab four or five languages in the next four or five, well, what, months? <laughs> so uh, maybe maybe not for uh, first outside, sorry, first attempt from me will be that quick. But um, I only speak this Canadian-Australian language. So uh, now, is there an example right now that you could tell us that you're personally learning? And I'm, I'm kind of hoping, because I just saw you update Facebook, that you booked a private tennis lesson. I'm a big tennis fan, um, that maybe tennis is on the cards here for what you're currently learning how to improve in. Is that something? You know, tennis is one I'd really like to get better at, because I'm kind of a caveman. Every, whenever I've tried tennis, I just hit it like a baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And it uh, doesn't work very well. Uh, so, so tennis is one I, I absolutely am going to take. Uh, I'm going to dabble with it, try it out, see if I see if I enjoy deconstructing tennis, and if I do, I'll definitely stick with it. Uh, surfing and Indonesian, actually, Bahasa Indonesian and surfing, I'm very interested in because I could potentially do both at the same time if I go to uh, Indonesia. So, those are two on the horizon for me, for sure. And uh, you know, what what I would em- emphasize is that when people see my bio. They think that I've had this, you know, incredible life start to finish, amassing all these incredible skills, and it's just not really true. Like it's about, you know, eighty percent of it's in the last few years, and it's because I've just I've settled on this process for acquiring all this stuff. And uh, you know, when people finish for our chef, what I want them to believe wholeheartedly is that rather than becoming world class in one or two things per lifetime, they could become world-class, like top 5% in the world in one or two things per year. I really want people to believe that and to go after these things they've assumed they could never be good at. And, uh, you know, whether it's playing the guitar or who the hell knows, anything. Um, anyway, yeah, no. I get super passionate about this. No, and I like that goal. I think that's, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the person listening to this who who might still be at the phase where they're working a nine to five job and they they're raising uh, a couple of kids and looking after a spouse or you know maintaining a relationship and just finding thirty minutes in a day to read your book is the first challenge <laughs> for them, yep. which seems quite distant from the idea of mastering you know one or two skills a year. I, I I guess I want to know the answer to two questions, Tim. Like that to to answer the question for the person I just described, is there a process you would suggest they, they go through? Maybe even read your books in order is the way to do this. You know, sort out the money, sort out the body, and then sort out the wisdom um, for that person listening to us. And I'm, I'm also curious to know what an average day in your life actually is now, when you get up and what you have for breakfast and what 
do you get on the phone and talk about the Silicon Valley deals you're doing? And or are you hopping on a plane to go learn surfing in Bali where you can learn the language as well? Like, how does a day in the life of Tim Ferriss go? Oh, man. Well, let me answer those in, in order. So I think that for the, the good news, you know, for somebody who only has 30 minutes a day, uh, the good news is I always recommend, no matter how ambitious someone is, is that they start with the smallest possible change that creates a big impact that they'll actually do. So for fat loss, for instance, 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up. Just have a shake. You know, don't you have 100 pounds to lose, do not start with going to the gym. Um, and I took my dad from, you know, five pounds of average fat loss to 18.75 pounds in four weeks of just adding 30 grams in the morning. Like no new exercise, don't worry about changing your meals, just the protein. So starting small is where you want to go. In terms of the books and reading them in order, I think the order I wrote them is probably a good order to read them in. But uh, you could even read The 4-Hour Chef first because the good news is the – the, the underlying thread is 80-20 analysis, like finding the 20% of activities or people who produce 80% of what you want in life, the, the outcomes you want, whether in business or elsewhere. That's the same in all three books. So I feel like the principles that you can apply everywhere are reflected in each of the three books. Um, that's, that's the good news. It's kind of the, the same toolkit for all three. Uh, as far as my average day goes, man, uh, I don't really have an average day. I do have certain routines, though. I mean, like this past weekend, I was in Los Angeles taking a, a sniper course with uh, snipers from the L.A. SWAT team. <laughs> you <know>? Why? <laughs> Why, Tim? <laughs> because I was just interested in it. And I met a Navy SEAL who introduced me to uh, the, the head instructor. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go with you and like coach you through it. I was like, well, like n not every day that you get that kind of offer. So I'll Fair do enough. it. And then... Uh, not very much fun bringing uh, bring guns to the airport. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Shipping guns around uh, US TSA does not like that very much. But uh, but the, for instance, like this week. Uh, well, this week is a very atypical because it's it's sort of launch time. But thirty grams of protein within thirty minutes of waking up. A mix of whey protein isolate and micellar casein. Wake up. I have pu'er tea. So I put on the water. Put on the kettle. And I have Chinese pu'er tea, which uh, has some really interesting health benefits, fat loss benefits, and also lights you up like a Christmas tree, which is useful. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd say a few days a week, I do three to five minutes of Vipassana meditation, sit seated but leaning back against a wall, so it's very comfortable. And I listen to one track, one music track, and I use that as my state, my state cue. So I'll just listen to one track, super short, three to five minutes, focusing on breathing, that's it. And then uh, for this week, I tend to batch tasks on a daily or weekly basis. So rather than trying to do like phone calls for half of the day, uh, emails for a quarter of the day, and then a quarter of the day doing A, B, C, D, and E, I really try to do like today, all day phone calls. That's it. It's been all day phone calls. And then other days, for instance, Fridays, I try to reserve for all of my in-person meetings, like catching up with people, lunches, drinks, happy hour, breakfast, whatever. I try to do all my in-person stuff on the same day. And I find the cognitive cost of task switching is really minimized that way. And you can just be in the zone for a longer period of time because your brain gets in the flow of doing one type of thing. Uh, and then typically at night I will use, um, I like one or two glasses of red wine as my habitual wind down. And then I like to either watch a, uh, like a comedy or read fiction before I go to bed to turn me off of 
problem-solving mode. I like to get out of problem-solving mode and sort of transport it outside of my head <laughs> for, for the last 30 to 60 minutes of the day and then uh, pop in a mouthpiece so I don't grind my teeth, put on my eye mask, and go to bed. And wake up and see what the next day brings. Exactly. Right. So I've always been curious, Tim, about something uh, that I'm sure you, you can <laughs> explain a lot about. Have you always been a writer? <laughs> no, no way. Is that the? Uh, is there more to the question? Is that <laughs> there? There is. I'm, I'm, when did you start? <laughs> okay. Uh, so I've I've never thought I was going to be a writer. I did take writing courses here and there, partially because they're required, uh, but never thought I was going to be a writer. I did take one class that very greatly influenced me, however, which was called the Literature of Fact in college, and it was taught by John McPhee, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker and has won the Pulitzer Prize. So he's as good as he gets. <clears throat> and his course was really, really eye-opening to me <laughs> for a few reasons. The first was that I remember when we got our first writing assignments back, and he said, don't be concerned. Uh, you're all good writers. And I was, well, I was just wondering as he handed them out, I'm like, what's this preamble about? And then I got my, my writing back. And his red marks, there was more red ink than the original black ink I had put down. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he just, he tore it to pieces. And there were all these superfluous adjectives and ridiculous adverbs and like sentences that were flowery, but at the end didn't add any value. And what was really fascinating about that was that as my writing improved, as my writing became clearer and crisper, my thinking improved. And so my class, my grades in all of my other classes went up. And how <laughs> old were my, you was this, when this was happening? This was senior year in college. So I have no idea. Early 20s, okay. I guess. Something like that. And, uh, and then I, I had to write my senior thesis, learned to hate writing yet again, and promised after graduating that I would never write anything longer than a short email for the rest of my life. <laughs> Clearly that did not work out as planned. Um, but the, the only reason that I ended up writing the four-hour work week was because I enjoyed teaching and I was invited back to Princeton to teach uh, a high-tech entrepreneurship lecture twice a year, which is one day each time. And uh, I had feedback forms. I always wanted feedback, you know, and uh, that's, that's my thing, right, tracking feedback. And one of the students in the sort of comments section of the feedback form in pretty typical Princeton snarky fashion said, uh, I don't know why you're teaching a class of 50 students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? <laughs> and uh, so I got this stupid idea in my head, you know, this, this seed planted, like, what if I were to write a book? Like, I don't want to. Last thing I want to do, that'd be ridiculous. But like, I wonder what I would write. Like, if I were to write a book, what would it be about? What were you and teaching I, at that class, though, Tim? Was that four-hour work week principles or something different? How to build a profitable uh, startup or business without outside financing. So. Okay. And also how to use direct response advertising and things like that to do so. Um, and so at that point in time, you know, I was actually taught that specific class from Argentina when I was doing tango and like having my own sort of crisis and walkabout around the planet. So I started at night. I would go to bed and I had these stupid ideas uh, about the book and I'd just take notes on my bedside uh, stand to get them out of my head so I could go to sleep because I had really bad insomnia at the time. 
And this stack of notes just grew and grew and grew and grew. And eventually, you know, I said to one of my buddies who was a, I explained this to one of my buddies who was a writer, just jokingly. I was like, yeah, I have a book's worth of notes already. Like, ha, ha, ha. And he said, oh, well, you should send it to my agent, see what he thinks. And I was like, uh, okay. And so, uh, talked to, you know, sent it to a few of his friends, not just one who were agents. Everyone was like, eh, not interested, except for one guy named Steve Hanselman, who's still my agent to this day. And, uh, He's like, yeah, we should make it a book. Absolutely. Totally get it. And we put together a proposal, sent it out to geez, 20, God knows how many, like a, a ton of publishers. Uh, only a fraction replied. 27 people replied. 26 people said hell no in, in pretty rude terms usually. And then one, the final crown, bought the book for a pittance. And uh, you know, nobody expected anything really. I think the initial print run was 12,000 copies. And um here we are, accidental, accidental career. <laughs> Amazing. So, and now you're a blogger as well. You write some fairly lengthy blog posts. Uh, yeah. Do you do yeah. any other forms of writing? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if we want to count Twitter and Facebook as right. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I'd say you know the blog and 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 the books. And uh, I I think you know I think I'm done with like doing thousands of experiments on myself for uh, 600 page books for a while because it takes a ton out of me. I mean, I think, yeah, it's just, it's just brutal. I mean, but this, uh, you know, I cut 250 pages from the four hour chef and it's, it's 672 pages still. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's a choose your own adventure book. So a lot like the four hour body, I don't expect anyone to read more than a hundred pages, uh, at a time because you kind of dip in and dip out of the stuff that you want. It is amazing that you're basically your, your late night brain dumping to try and get to sleep was the catalyst to create a book and lead to the career you've had with the four hour series. Can you maybe tell us though, I'm I'm sure this is not how the four hour chef came together. This wasn't late night, uh, brain dumping and and doodles on little coffee, um, paper, (laughs) anything like that. This was a coordinated experimental traveling around the world. Can you explain from the point of conception of a book like this to going about the actual experiments and recording and tracking your results to then actually sitting down and writing the book. Did you batch process all of that the way you like you doing a day of interviews today? Did you do, you know, a month of traveling with chefs and then a month of writing the book? How did you do it? Yeah, I did it mostly that way. One catastrophe that hit me, which, which really screwed up my plans was my right hand man, like my COO, uh, right in the middle of the process had a bunch of family crises and had to stop uh, working basically. And so my shield against the outside world, which was allowing me to focus on the book, disappeared. And that was a total disaster. So I really had to get good at time management and organization to an extent that was like multiple, multiple magnitudes of order beyond anything I'd done before. Uh, Total disaster. I mean, uh, definitely I had not been to like the breaking point since like 2000 and this, this, this project definitely took me there. And I think some of my best work came out of it as a result. But the, the short answer is, you know, the book idea crystallized when a few things happened simultaneously. Number one, I really did want to write a book on learning, but I was looking for the most entertaining context to do that through. Uh, a good friend of mine also around the same time said, you know, it would be really fun because these other books, like you go out, you try everything, you learn everything, and then you tell people. He's like, what would be really fun for your readers is to see you start from total idiot in a skill, ground zero, clumsy and, and totally, totally terrible, 
and then walk them through the process of getting good at it. And then uh, <laughs> these all happened at the same time. I was also around that time feeling this very acute like digital malaise where I wanted to start building things with my hands. I just like closing the laptop and having done stuff virtually just wasn't enough. I wanted to build something like a you know, birdhouse or whatever. But it was inconvenient to like go to a wood shirt, uh, woodworking shop. And then I watched my girlfriend who learned to cook while watching her grandmother cooking. And I was like, wow, well, I eat three times a day. Cooking has kicked my ass many times. Uh, maybe I should try cooking. <laughs> and, you know, all of these things happened uh, simultaneously. And that's how the idea started to come together. When, uh, when was this? It's about a couple of years ago, Tim? or Two years ago. Right. Probably two years ago. And um, the other thing that was happening is, you know, people who were on the four-hour body were like, oh, I'm bored with this, this, and this. Like, I, I need other types of foods. I'm really bored of eating, like, canned beans every day. <laughs> so, uh, and so I was like, well, what if I could make a cookbook that was actually a book on learning where all the recipes are slow carb compliant, but nobody will know because they're amazing and you never be never be hungry, except for the cheat meals. Those are epic, but that's a separate story. And like, what if I could wrap it all into one? And um, that's how that was like a year and a half, two years ago. And then uh, sold the book to Amazon Publishing, which was a first in the front of the New York Times and everything. Um, and that was quite a process because. Uh, you know, Amazon was just getting into obviously publishing, so it was a big risk. But my feeling was, I've done the traditional thing twice. I'd like to try something new. Like I'd like to experiment. Uh, and then the actual writing process was very different from the first book. So now I have tools and organization that I just didn't have that time around. So now I use Evernote, the application Evernote, for almost all of my research and gathering all of the bits and pieces. I use for any design elements or capturing visual inspiration or anything like that. I also use Evernote, but I, in addition to that, for interacting with my teams, that was a huge headache with the last two books, was all the email and the Word documents and ugh, terrible. So Evernote, then I use uh, to write, I write in a program called Scrivener, which is usually used by screenwriters uh, and uh, novelists, but it's great. It allows me to have all of my documents in one view. So I'm not like opening all these different windows in Word and having it crash and all that crap. So Scrivener. Then for any kind of design feedback, because this book has more than 1,500 photos in it, um, I use Sketch for screen shots where I can just point out things I want to move around or change. And then uh, I use ScreenFlow. So ScreenFlow allows me to just take video of my screen as I talk over it with video or without video. And that saves dozens of hours. And the heartbeat of all this, I have two main home bases for all of this stuff that I just mentioned. So one is Dropbox. So I'll put like all the videos, all the screenshots, everything into Dropbox so that people can download them at their leisure and they're all centralized. And then for communication, rather than relying on email, I use Basecamp. So Basecamp by 37 Signals is what I use for, for instance, right now I have one project is uh, 4HC, you know, four hour chef launch, right? And that's where all the information for my calls this week are and the calendar for all those calls. Then I have 4HC site, which is all the, the four hour chef website related stuff, 4HC sidebars. That's for editorial stuff and so on and so forth. So it's very systematized now. And that's kind of my workflow for this current book and probably the workflow that I'll use for anything I do moving forward. Although I'm taking a break from this book nonsense. 
<laughs> and before we talk about your future, which doesn't include books, um, how how long would it take? Like, obviously, a book like this is not a narrative where you're telling a story, or maybe it is because you've been telling a story in your other books, your own sort of story. Do you write it all at once, or do you sit down and do an experiment, write about that? How does it come together? Yeah, so it, it, this book is highly, highly narrative. Uh, really narrative because I, I really think that storytelling is the best way to teach. So there's a, there's a ton of storytelling in this. Uh, and the, the way that I write it is typically getting notes from anything handwritten to digital as quickly as possible. So typically I'll take my notes by hand then I'll go through and I'll highlight the pieces that I think are interesting. I will number those and then in the order that I think they should appear in a given section, and then I'll put them into something like Evernote, for instance. Uh, I do find that I write best between 10... Okay, I find that all of my friends who write consistently and put out a decent amount of content that's good write best between 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. So they either go to bed really late or they wake up really early. And I think that's really simple to explain. I think it's because you, you can, it's easiest to concentrate when the rest of the world is freaking asleep <laughs> or just not on the internet, like knocking on your door. Uh, so I, I, I write best, I synthesize best after 10 p.m. What that means is I'll do all of my interviews, all of my experiments, everything like that during the day. Uh, and then I'll do, if I'm doing synthesis, and sometimes it's like a week at a time of just experiments, but when I do my synthesis, it's almost always between 10 p.m. And I stay up late. So I'll do like 10 p.m. until I run out of steam. And if, if the spirit's moving me and I'm in the zone, I'll keep on going until I face plant. Uh, but uh, that's, that's my general process. Um, I, and I all, this is another key. When I'm structuring my books, the, the choosing an adventure aspect to, the, to my books, where you can read them out of, the chapters out of order in many cases and so forth, is fun for the reader and it's, it's easier to digest, I think, but it's also easier for me to write because if I get stuck on a chapter, I can skip to something else and keep working on that. And if you're writing a book that has a really strict sequence, uh, it's very difficult to do that because you could write one piece later and then you go back to write something earlier and you're like, oh man, now I have to rewrite this, this, and this because you know, each piece is dependent on the next. Um, so I, I really try to make each chapter a self-contained magazine article with a beginning, middle, and an end so I can move it around. Mm. I like that. It's a nice way of feeling a sense of completion too as you complete each section. Oh, yeah, it's great. Otherwise, you're just like, a, a freaking book, really? Oh, my God. And it's like looking at something on your Kindle where you're like, really? I've been reading for an hour. I'm only like 0.5% through it? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned Basecamp and a, a group of people who are working with you. Who are they and then what do they do? Uh, well, it's different for different phases, right? So for the, for the actual book production side, I had uh, probably, boy, uh, maybe a dozen photographers working at different times, uh, many of which I supervised. I had some photo shoots that I supervised in New York City and San Francisco myself, um, illustrators, <clears throat> a handful of illustrators, many chefs, people being interviewed who uh, many of which were interviewed by me, some of which were interviewed by people I hired as professional interviewers who had done journalism and wrote for magazines, newspapers, and so forth. Uh, for the launch, and then, of course, designers and 
it was a really, it was like running a startup. It was very much like running a 30 or 40 person startup without a doubt. Um, and had all the hierarchy necessary to do that. On the launch side of things, I have publicists in the U.S., publicists who are going to be working overseas, uh, some of which report directly to me, some of which report directly to like an executive publicist that I interact with. Then I have a team of people that, uh, like for instance, you've interacted with, I think, Alex, maybe Ryan. Yes, Ryan and Alex. Yeah, who are spearheading my digital organization for launch. Uh, Then I have... All the people at Amazon who've actually been awesome to work with because they're really like aggressive, they're like aggressive, nimble tech company. And you wouldn't think of like a hundred billion dollar company as nimble, but they're really freaking fast. And uh, Amazon Publishing uh, has the benefit of being a startup; it's new, you know. So they're scrappy, which I love. So I have director of marketing that I deal with there, editors and so forth, of course. But uh, it's yet another like SWAT team that I'm working with on the, the marketing and promotional side. So it's, it's super exciting, but, uh, with, with a project of this scope, uh, it's been really, really important to find people I think are world-class and bring them in to do things that not only I don't have the bandwidth to do, but things that they'll do better than I can do. Uh, so I I think I've become better at selecting talent as well over the last few years, Mm. which is a skill unto itself. Uh, the best book I've found on interviewing for that type of talent is uh, Top Grading, but the old edition, not not the new editions, which are kind of just ups, like upsells to like programs and nonsense. Um, <laughs> the old edition that content in the book itself is what you want, like the first edition. The original Top Grading. Okay, I guess that explains how you brought together your team. And I assume that's a mixture of local and uh, contracting out overseas, the old Philippines, Indians, Ukrainians, that. (laughs) Wherever the best talent is, man, I don't care where they are. I mean, I had people doing illustration in Singapore. I had people doing illustration in uh, Australia. I had people doing um, audio for video that we're putting together in, you know, Estonia, Lithuania, I don't care where they are as long as they're really, really good. So yeah, definitely a mix of people domestic and overseas. Okay. Now, Tim, we'll start to wrap this up. Um, I think we, I'm excited about the book. Obviously Uh, it's amazing to see what goes into something like this too. When you hear it broken down like that, it's, it's a big job. It's not a a case of sitting in a cafe and and writing a, a couple of thousand words a day for a few months and you're done. You, you've put a lot into this. But yeah. you've also said that this is potentially, maybe not your last book, but the, the one, you're not going to do it again for a while. Of course, yep. you know, you've got to be careful when you say things like that because you never know <laughs> what happens next year, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. What are you thinking then for the future? Like, what, what still floats your boat? Is it shooting people in sniper school or...? <laughs> 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 no, we were shooting. Uh, we were shooting steel targets, which okay. is really. Although a lot of people that. Are like, hey, what are you shooting? And I'm like, ah, you know, abandoned kittens. They're pretty slow moving. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was kidding, of course. I actually had some people believe me. Uh, it's like my IQ test. But the um, <clears throat> what I'm really excited about, honestly, is teaching. And books are just one method of teaching. So I, I'm 35. I think I have. I don't have too many years left of this, like running around doing crazy, ridiculous stuff to myself. You know, once I have a family, I'm not going to want to do all the extreme human guinea pig stuff uh, because it's just, you know, it's, it's too much. And I, I do all that pushing the envelope so my readers don't have to, but I would still like to do some. And uh, so I really want to experiment with television and video and the visual medium. So I could see, I could see TV or some type of episodic 
teaching with crazy, crazy experiments and environments and settings uh, as my next step. I, I think I'd really enjoy that. And, you know, the idea, because I've done some TV in the past, and the idea of just being able to film an entire season in two months and to have the entire year to look forward to that stuff and to have teams who are working on post-production so I'm not, like, reading my own goddamn chapters 700 times myself. <laughs> it's very appealing. Uh, and certainly, you know, before, uh, before I'm not willing to take some of these physical risks and, you know, jump off buildings or whatever, I'd like to capture that. It'd be kind of fun to have a diary of that stuff. So we'll see, but that's, that's where I'm leaning. Mm. I mean, you could even begin that with the webisodes. Uh, that seems to be the place people start now. Yeah. Yeah, certainly could. I mean, geez, Louise, it's like, I know when you look at some of these YouTube channels, I've met some of the superstars and it's like, they have you know, five times as many YouTube subscribers as they would ever get on a cable show. Exactly. It's amazing. It's just, yeah, the leverage is there. There's too many channels now for one show to get that big, I think. So yeah, something about YouTube. So that's, that's where I think I'm, I'll probably be playing around next. Okay. We'll look forward to seeing that, Tim. Uh, I look forward to hopefully one day getting down to San Francisco and, and, uh, hanging out with this crowd. I'm, I'm assuming you have some interesting friends that you hang out with on a regular basis down there too. So, Oh yeah, yeah. They make me look like decaf. I mean, my, what's funny is like when 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 I hear people say like, "Oh man, you're so intense and you seem so productive," I'm like, "You should meet my friends." <laughs> like I'm a I'm a I'm purely a product of my peer group. They make me look like the the laziest, most disorganized guy you can imagine. Um, so it's it's a good crew out here. You should definitely come and hang out, have some wine and some good food. All right. So to wrap it up, Tim, uh, obviously four hours chef. Where is the best place to get info about that? Yeah, for our chef, um, certainly, uh, I mean, Amazon's going to be the cheapest place to get it probably. Uh, definitely designed it to be most, like the optimal experience in print, although the digital would be great. Like I kind of planned it uh, by two-page spreads. Um, but fourhourchef.com will have all sorts of goodies on it. And then uh, one offer for people if they're interested, if they buy three copies of the book, it is the ultimate holiday book. I, and I, I feel very comfortable saying that because I killed myself to make it that. 1,500 photos, tons of illustrations, Calvin and Hobbes, supermodels. It's got something for everybody. Um, so <laughs> Calvin get, and Hobbes, supermodels? Are those two separate things? Or? <laughs> yeah, those are two separate. Okay. Uh, the, uh, but if you get three copies of the print book, you know, two for gifts, just send the Amazon receipt to three books at fourhourchef.com. So the number three books spelled out obviously at four the number four hourchef.com and uh, I will invite you to an exclusive uh, one to two hour Q&A live Q&A with me uh, the week after lunch and I'll grab a bottle of wine you can ask me anything that you want so if you get three books uh, there's that as well but uh, either way this is this is uh, I want people to at least start pushing pushing a little bit on uh, on the things that they've held off on trying to learn because it's uh, there's there are adventures to be had <laughs> And you're doing them all at the same time, so it's uh, inspiring, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I'll put the links to, to uh, clarify those details along with the the blog post that goes with this podcast and the transcript as well. Uh, Tim, that's it. Uh, any last words before we, we say goodbye? Uh, any last words? Maybe not say last words. I'm sure we'll talk no, again, no, no. but you know, for this this session. No, what I would say is just, and this sounds morbid, but this is part of the reason why I really do. Uh, you know, I don't have any problem with hard work as long as it's applied to the right things. Um, and I think that's clear if you read the four hour work week. And like the reason that I, I bleed out my eyeballs 
for a book like The 4-Hour Chef. And this was, this was really brutal process to put this thing together. But it's because I've had some of my friends pass away in the last few years, whether through accidents or sickness. And it's like life is short. And I think that the, the, the most incredible force multiplier that you can possibly have is by like doubling or tripling your learning potential, you know, and that's something you can pass on to your kids and everything. So sounds kind of somber, kind of serious, but it's, it's, it's legitimate. And so I just encourage people, you know, to, to take, you know, take, take life seriously. It's, uh, it's non-renewable. So at least as far as we know, so <laughs> and that would be the comment. And I think you'd be the first person to agree that just because you pass 30 or 40 or 50 doesn't mean your learning capacity decreases, right? Not at all. And actually you look at, I, I can I can prove that adults learn languages faster than kids, and plus it's like <laughs> talk to any three year old like they're in English their English is not so hot like you can do a lot better so um, <laughs> you're uh, you, uh, you absolutely can can tackle anything I mean Colonel Sanders started Kentucky Fried Chicken when he was like sixty years old so it's it's never too late to get started. Fantastic so. Fourhourchef.com is the place to get information about the book. It'll be at Amazon, and it'll be all over the web when this goes out to no doubt because you're a fantastic online marketer when it comes to doing a launch like this, Tim. So um, I look forward to reading the book, and thanks for spending a bit of time talking about it here with me today. Yeah, this is great, man. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. And if you'd like to grab uh, the details that went with this podcast and all my other shows, you can go to entrepreneurs-journey.com or Google my name, Yaro, Y-A-R-O. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.